Hey guys, welcome to season two, episode four of the Every Plant Story podcast, a podcast where we share all kinds of plant stories and behind the scenes of the life here at Gabriella Plants and all around our plant community. My name is Shane Malloy. I'm the owner and president of Gabriella Plants, and I'm your host for today's podcast, along with two lovely gentlemen, Brett Weiss, who is our uh, botanist and head grower here at Gabriella Plants. Hello. And Zach, who is our media director um, here at Gabriella Plants as well. Howdy. Awesome. So we're going to have um, meat of the show today is going to be on a couple question and answers that we got and we want to address and then also some myth busting. I know Brett yes. wants to to bust down, but we have a couple new things we're trying to bring into the mix in every podcast episode. So Brett, why don't you go ahead and start today's podcast with our botanical term of the day? Woo-woo! All right. Botanical term of the day, ladies and gentlemen, we have for you is Marcescent, spelled M-A-R. C-E-S-C-E-N-T, in reference to petals or leaves remaining attached, although withered. This is in regards to retention of dead plant organs that are normally shed. So uh, you could think of most people listening to this may think of oak trees up north, which are deciduous trees uh, and would typically shed their leaves or die in the winter. Um, But there are some oaks that even when the leaves die, they still remain attached to the tree. Oh, I think I've seen that before. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I was reading the like science behind it. And there actually isn't like a solid answer to why the plants do it. There's a couple different theories. Does it does it stay locked to like gene like to a specific species? Or is it kind of just like even within a species, some of them do some of them don't? Um, So that is actually also depending on the species. So there are some species where the entire species, that's how it is. And then there are some where it's case by case scenario. Hmm. One of the theories that I was reading about was saying that hypothetically, it could be that if the tree is being grown in a cold area with a lot of snow, if they were to drop those leaves in the wintertime and they were to land on the ground underneath, it would take them a lot longer to decompose and for the plant to actually gain the nutrients mm-hmm. from those decomposing leaves because it's so cold. Whereas if they hold onto it until spring and then drop them, now those leaves will hit fresh ground. And then once they... The uh, rainy season kicks in, you start exactly, decomposing the whole thing. And they decompose quicker. Now they're able to actually uh, get more nutrients from those leaves. Interesting. And so there's a there's a whole a bunch of other theories. So please, if you are interested in it, look up marcescent or marcescence. Is that like does that come from a particular like Latin word? Like is that constructed from a certain thing? Uh I'm so ashamed. I did not look up the root of, right. of that word. I am sorry. No, it's all good. I, I, I just <laughs> I'm always like marcescent. I'm just trying to think through. Mm-hmm. I only took. I, yeah. And by took, I mean failed <laughs> Latin, so I can't really pass any judgment on you, but it always does fascinate me because a lot of those terms are actually make a mm-hmm. lot more sense when you know, you know what I mean? Like some exactly. of these things are really basic and then some of them are like, where did exactly did you get that no, name mo- from? Most mm-hmm. botanical Latin, once you know the the Latin roots, uh, it, the words and the names start to make a lot more sense. There's a whole class we could do right there. Just oh, on, like, don't even get me a, started. It I... would be a sleeper, both in like the sense that you'd be sleeping through it and it's a sleeper full of information. I've already started reading my 600-page book on botanical Latin. Of course so you it have. Is, it is, isn't it, is it easier to learn other languages if you know Latin first as well? Well, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. Most yeah. of the world... Kind of is in some way or another, yeah, based in that, Hmm. especially the academic world, which botanics stays so far into, um, like, but medicine and botany, a lot of the, like, yeah, science and definitely Mm. still uses (laughs) it heavily for sure. Well, that's awesome. 
I am always looking forward to the botanical terms of the day. And also, I just wish that our listeners could know that Brett has these for every podcast episode. They also just come at you every time you interact with Brett <laughs> in a natural way. So I'm always learning something new from you, Brett, and it's awesome. All right, so I wasn't too happy with giving you guys the answer of I didn't know. So I looked up the etymological background of the word marcescent. So marcescent adjective, withering, liable to decay, ephemeral. From 1727, from the Latin for marcescentum, meaning to wither, languish, droop, decay, or pine away. Um, in the greenhouse, though, obviously yes. we're hitting springtime. It's getting oh a little my bit goodness. warmer now. There are so many plants out there growing that mm -hmm. we are still waiting to share with you guys. Uh, so many, so many new plants. It's they so look so happy too. I know, <laughs> I know. They're all they're all happy, just like we're happy that it's finally <laughs> yeah. not cold anymore. But oh, it's yeah. it's crazy to see how much you can. And we we talked about it before and stuff. But over winter, like spend three months waiting for one new leaf, and now mm -hmm. I feel like I go into the greenhouse every third day or something. <laughs> and the whole bench is grown by a foot, so it's Absolutely. really cool to see. What are you most excited for that's kind of coming down the line over at the greenhouse that customers could look forward to? All right. Well, something that I have been wanting to grow on a commercial level for the longest time, even before I ever thought that I would ever be head grower at a greenhouse are metanilla. Metanilla are such awesome plants and there's so many different kinds of medanilla but so we currently have four different species of medanilla growing okay um and we actually have two new species that will be on this week's inventory update that's really awesome really cool um and so the one i want to highlight now is medanilla apoensis okay um so most medanilla are grown or best displayed in a hanging basket um because they are epiphytic but also because their blooms are pendulous meaning they hang like mm -hmm. a chandelier um, pendulous, like a pendulum mm -hmm. would hang. Um, but Apoensis is actually an upright variety. So we're growing it in a five inch, no hanger, um, because it is more of a, a shrub growth habit. Mm -hmm. And instead of having pendulous hanging flowers, um, the bright pink flowers are born on like this upright stem and they're really, really pretty. I have a mature one in the back and it's basically blooming all the time. That's crazy. I was going to ask, how often do they produce those blooms? Yeah, if the Apoensis specifically, as long as you keep them watered because they are thirsty plants, as long as you keep them watered and happy, they will bloom continuously. That's amazing. Do they smell good? Uh, they do not have a scent. Okay, because I know I've been walking, Zach also posted the other day, the scratch and sniff thing, because <laughs> mm -hmm. you can walk past some of those orchids <laughs> oh, yes. from my grandpa's collection there right I there. I love that. You'll just be walking around, just get random whiffs. Like, what is that? <laughs> you go searching in all the benches. <laughs> it's like trying to find the one blooming Hoya somewhere. You yep. can smell it. Exactly. You just got to find where that where that <laughs> bloom is. That's awesome. Anything else you're super excited about? Yeah, so those Manila we have uh upcoming in, you know, this week and the next couple weeks. Uh something else I am pretty excited about is a ficus benjamina cultivar called Too Little. I've had a, a personal a personal Too Little uh for a couple years now and it basically is a dwarf of a dwarf version of a regular <laughs> benjamina so when i say these leaves mature are no bigger than an inch they are never any bigger than an inch really so they make the perfect bonsai tree they are the coolest looking thing they're so cute i bought mine as like a super overgrown four inch two or three years ago and in that time it's probably only gained six or eight inches in height um because it's just 
It's a really weird, different cultivar that was found by this nursery down in South Florida that they've cultivated. And so it's called Too Little because it is it is too little. <laughs> and, and, and it will remain that way. Yep. How, does it grow slower because of the smaller leaves? No, I mean, it. the one I have is still a consistent grower, just the because of the size of the leaf and because of the size of the overall plant, it grows, but it doesn't ever actually gain any uh, like large amount of height because the growth is just so minuscule. Interesting. Do you that's think that's like a like a survival instinct? Like it's not trying to overstep its boundaries and really kind of conserve. I or? think. I mean, it was a cult. It was a cultivar that they found in a crop of what I believe was regular Benjamina. So I think it really was just some mutation that happened. Some crazy yeah. DNA I, glitch. I don't think it was an evolutionary thing. I think yeah, it was just, it perfectly said. Yeah, some DNA glitch that it decided to be really small instead, and they were like, "Hey, that's different. We're gonna keep that separate," <laughs> and just prop from that. And so, which happens a lot. I mean. It hasn't happened as much in the new cultivar sense, mm-hmm. but like that definitely happens a lot in oh, plants yeah. in general. It's just like, oh, that one does have a little bit mm-hmm. different of a, of a yellow than mine has. You know, let me take mm-hmm. that and let me work on that. So sport, sport mutation, I would say between sport mutation and just breeding, sport mutation definitely has uh, given rise to a lot of some of our favorite cultivars. Yeah, it's really cool to see, too, because those are like. It's like your own version of a scratch-off ticket mm-hmm. in like a certain way. Like yep. if you're growing 10,000 of them, mm. there will be a couple in there. Well, that and that's what I... Complete freaks. I love being a, you know, full production greenhouse in the sense that when we get those seven trays of something from tissue culture, being able to like, like you said, lottery ticket, like being able to look through that tray of, you know, all those trays of 500, 600 plants and finding that one that is slightly different be, being like, ooh, like well, there's special. potential there. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do really it. cool. Oh yeah, yeah. you'll oh, come yeah. over and like, hey, will you will you put these two aside for me? <laughs> Just uh, stick them over there for yep. a little while. Um, no, that's really awesome. And you can of course go and find those plants on our website in future updates yep. at gabriellaplants.com. G a b r i e l l a plants.com. So thanks for that, Brett. Yes. I know I know it's hard to limit it to two. Yeah. Uh, but, but there will, we will have more next podcast. So stay tuned. Yeah, that's gonna be awesome. Um, moving on, uh, we're going to call this next kind of segment New Discovery. And I know, Brett, it's been a really beloved podcast of mine whenever we talk about some of the reclassifications mm-hmm. and all these different things and, and where science is now figuring out stuff that the human eye probably didn't see before. So exactly. what's new on that front? All right. So this isn't what the podcast is about. So I'm going to give you the headline, but I encourage you if you want to know more, Google it, look it up. But so in 2018, uh, the genus Senecio, um, which a lot of your string of plants is from, so a string of pearls, a string of dolphins, um, string of fish hooks, all these different mm-hmm. ones, was actually reclassified uh, in a sense that it was split up. So Senecio is part of the Asteraceae family, um, which is a huge family, a really, really, really big plant family. And so what they've been doing is they have been uh, genetically testing um, the Senecio and reclassifying them based on not just what they look like morphologically in appearance, but what the DNA says. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, you know, putting them and categorizing them based on that. So Senecio was recently split into Capuchia, Clinia, and Curio. And so most notably, I would say, is String of Pearls, which was Senecio Raulianus, is now Curio Raulianus. 
Interesting. Yes. It's always crazy, though, because I do think that's one of the, you know, people think when they think reclassification, they think that all Sansevieria has moved to Dracenia. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, these massive shifts where like just history got it wrong, mm-hmm. full stop, the whole, you know, the whole thing. Right. And then you have, especially driven by this, we've talked about before, but like the DNA side of things, these tests that you can now run where you didn't have that before. Mm-hmm. You would literally write, this is a red philodendron. That's how you right. would you know, long, long, skinny red leaf. Like that's how you would describe something. And now we're getting to the point where even though they appear the same, Mm -hmm. they're not technically the same. Right. And I mean, the botanists before this type of testing weren't necessarily wrong because they were classifying plants based on the best abilities and tools and instruments that they had for that time. Because Mm -hmm. back then they said, hey, this Senecio is related to this Senecio because their flowers look the same. But now we're able to go a little bit further. It's like it's like they stopped reading halfway through the book and now we're able to finish the second half of the book and, you know, get into that next Figure chapter. Figure out how the story ends. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, no, it's it's always mind-boggling to me. And the only reason I I think like a lot of people, like just at his, at a gut level, don't like when we reclassify things, like just as a human level, mm-hmm. is that oftentimes they change them to these names that you don't know <laughs> and that people aren't familiar with. But it's also important that we get out there and try to share those things when we do see them, not because mm-hmm. we need to be the world police of people being botanically accurate, but because otherwise you may not realize in five years that that plant used to be called this. You right. know, I feel like this is something that doesn't often get the headlines in the plant community yeah, as much as it deserves. I think the biggest, I think the biggest thing that people are obstinate about reclassifications or name changes is just like, oh, well, I already learned it as this thing. I don't want to mm-hmm. have to learn it as the other thing. But to put it in a somewhat meta way, if your name was Christina and your whole life everyone was calling you Chrissy, but you knew your name was Christina, but you couldn't ever speak out and say, hey, I'm actually Christina, that's not my name, to then finally have the world recognize on your name tag that it says Christina, again, in a meta way, I think we should like respect the plants and mm-hmm. call them what they actually are. Absolutely. And I it will continue to change as yeah. this technology happens because this wasn't something anyone could afford to do to a plant exactly. a couple of decades ago. So. Or we, yeah, we didn't even have the technology to understand how to do it. So yeah. really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, keep <laughs> us posted on anything more in that. Um, yes. Last little fun uh, segment we wanted to throw in here, um, right in there with reclassifications <laughs> that I can't say, is uh, pronunciations in general. So what do you have for us on that front? All right. So a plant that we, a brand new plant that we released last week on last week's inventory update, that is actually, we are one of the first few people in the United States to be growing it and selling it. Really, really cool new aeroid is called Apoballus Acuminatissima. Lavellier. I saw those. Say that 10 times okay. fast. So Apoballus acuminatissima Lavellier was once believed to be a schismatoglottis, but they reclassified schismatoglottis and realized that, hey, these are actually different. We're going to call them Apoballus. So I'm going to attempt to save myself from not knowing the Latin roots mm-hmm. for the, the uh, Marcessans. <laughs> um, acuminatissima. So acumina is to sharpen. And then atissima is a superlative suffix, which would mean or add on most so or to the greatest degree. So acumen atissima is the sharpest of the sharp, basically. 
Um, so I could imagine that it would have something to do with the bloom structure or the leaf is really, really pointed. What makes it stand out from other, like, could you describe what they look like for a listener who maybe isn't, is it familiar with that in the top of their head? Okay. Yes. So let me paint you this picture of this beautiful plant. Okay. So the front side of the leaves are this awesome silver, the term is glaucus, the silver blue foliage speckled with darker silver patches. And then the underside is this deep burgundy maroon color on a tight, compact plant with these really soft feeling leaves. Why, where did they come from? Why weren't they available before? Was this just something that has been recently discovered in the houseplant world as far as like? I believe that Aboballus acuminatissima lavellier is native to and endemic to Borneo, meaning it's only found on the island of Borneo. And I believe it was first discovered in 2009. Wow. So, yes, it has been a few years since 2009, but to be able to take a plant from the jungles, bring it back into cultivation, and then to be able to put it into tissue culture and mass produce it and then get it to growers does take a considerable amount oh, of time. I'm sure you had tons so. of testing and all that too because just because you find a really cool plant in the wild doesn't mean when you remove it from that environment that it's going to survive in exactly. the ways we think it is. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they have to you know, cross-check, be like, okay, is this just a slight variant of something else that we know for sure right. is, you know. That's wild. Yep. Well, that's awesome. So if you have not added one of these to your collection, go ahead and do it. We have them. Check it out. You need it. Yeah, it's it's stunning. They look amazing. You need to <laughs> bring me one over okay. to Brooks. Yes. Would, would they do well in a hanging basket? Absolutely. Okay. That was my plan. You know me with my big hanging baskets over there. Well, thanks so much for all that, Brett. I'm really looking forward to the next podcast episode because I can't wait to see. You, you've set the bar high. We're going to have to come in next time and definitely uh, be ready to learn a little bit more at the top, Zach, because uh, there were a lot of terms in there. I needed, yeah. to, I needed to eat my graham crackers before I went into that. <laughs> but going into the next thing, I know you had some myth busters, Brett, that you wanted to kind of address before we get to the questions that we asked for and we'll answer as well. But what do you have on your mind for myth busters right now? All right, so... So this is a Mythbuster episode. I expect this to come with controversy from the listeners because these Mythbusters that we're going to bust come from the overall plant community. So these are things that I'm hearing or seeing being posted online, being posted on social media that as a grower, myself personally and Shane, we want to talk you guys down <laughs> off the ledge that maybe this isn't necessarily the truth or the case. All right. But and if so, you have a different opinion, let us <laughs> let know. Let us know. Yeah, yeah let us Push know. Push them over the edge if you have to. <laughs> so the name of the myth this week is death plugs. Dun, dun, dun. Death Whoa. plugs. Death plugs. So what they're saying online is that when you receive, when we receive in from tissue culture a plant, It comes in the cell tray, and in each of those cells is what we would call a plug, Mm -hmm. which is the tiny baby plant that has come out of the tissue culture auger and been planted into a a peat, basically a little peat uh, plug. Plug, Yeah. 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 There's no other way to really say it. And surrounding that plug is a thin mesh fabric, similar to Uh like landscape fabric. So... If you think of landscape fabric or even like felt, let's call it felt, okay? Mm -hmm. It's even thinner than felt. It's super thin. What they're saying online and why they're calling them death plugs is that they are claiming that this fabric is suffocating the roots Mm -hmm. of the plants that it comes in. 
and it is not only suffocating the roots and stopping them from growing correctly, but also holding too much moisture in that center area that isn't in the rest of the pot. So first of all, let me say in every single video I watched of someone ripping the death plug off of this <laughs> off of this plant saving they're, this plant's yeah, life quote or... unquote saving this plant's life they're t- they're unpotting this plant removing all of the soil and then in order to remove the death plug that fabric they're ripping off all of the roots that have already grown through it correct because they're <laughs> able because there's it, it's it not it felt is is almost too intense right it's a membrane yeah would be like a better way to look mm-hmm. at it it is it is a thin membrane and it's similar to the you, like when you used to plant like a tomato mm-hmm. or something where they're kind of in those like biodegradable pots exactly. it's like the wafer thin yes. version of that material so it, it is permeable and it also mm-hmm. is able to be grown through. Plants can. Right. I don't know if you've seen any concrete lately, but uh, <laughs> but trees can can you know. Yes. They, they their roots can go where they need to go. So my uh, my statement that I would like to put back out there is hot take. Yeah, my hot take is that if the roots are already growing through, through the fabric, don't. How can you say that it is suffocating and stopping root growth? If the roots are already growing through it. Mm -hmm. And now in the process of you removing it, you're doing so much more damage to the plant than if you just left it alone. Yeah, no, it does. It does pain my heart. You sent me one clip of this a little (laughs) while ago and, and we were reminiscing about how much this pains our heart because, yeah, there was a reason why. The tissue culture labs will use that. And by mm-hmm. the way, not all of them do. It's right. not completely standard, but it's also not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about it in those tiny little plug trays. That's a lot of if you have a drainage hole, that's not a large volume of soil mm-hmm. to be able to keep together. So using some form of membrane helps in the production process mm-hmm. and also helps in the ability. The reason I've always loved the ones that come with that mm-hmm. is because the ability to take it out of the tray and mm-hmm. not damage any of the plant tissue while trying to remove its soil, right. which should be somewhat rooted through in that tiny, right. tiny, tiny little plug size so that you can pull it loose. But it doesn't always happen that way. Mm-hmm. So those fabrics can do a ton to be able to make them usable in a commercial sense. And we also are going to plant them into soil. Yes. And the system will continue to grow. Yes, preach. Which, yes. yes. <laughs> it, it is part of the natural thing. But I can understand why somebody who sees that and goes, oh, maybe this wasn't meant to be planted this way. Maybe mm-hmm. somebody forgot to take this mm-hmm. part off in a step mm-hmm. of the process. And I think that sometimes people jump to the, you know, go to the ledge on <laughs> on, on a particular topic without realizing kind of just the reality check. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's probably a lot of other plants out here who have that have had similar, mm-hmm. the same system used on it and they're growing, you know, there's just that little Mm -hmm. bit of reality check sometimes we have to come to, but I can also understand the gut reaction to, oh, this is probably missed. This isn't like the other pots. Cause if if we're propagating cuttings, we're putting it right in the soil. There's no fabric membrane holding Mm -hmm. the cuttings together. So I can understand how just visually alone, it seems out of place. Yeah. And I'm sure there've, there've been some instances where they were wrapped too tightly or the method that you know was gone into it for that batch wasn't done properly Mm -hmm. which could have you know maybe yeah led to most of the time like from what i'm seeing online of these plants that people are claiming died because of this death plug the cause of death was actually more related to just overall care 
And mm. then once it was already dying, they take it out and then see that it happens to have this fabric around where the original tissue culture plug mm. was. And they're just using their best method of trying to connect the dots of like, hey, this is here. It isn't on my other plants. Be. Yeah. Yeah, maybe this is the, re- yeah, you know, causation mm-hmm. uh, of this. But uh, it, it, it's it's a... I can completely see, and it's a logical thing to come to, mm-hmm. if you have other plants that are like it that don't have it, and then right. you see the substance that doesn't exist. But as growers here, we're here to dispel <laughs> that myth and to be able to say, no, it is botanically healthy for the plant. Um, I would say, depending on the species and depending on the exact size when it's taken out of the auger and, mm-hmm. and all those factors in, could it be a tiny bit of a barrier to that root that is still yet to mm-hmm. punch its way through? Sure, it's a little bit harder right. than plain soil would be, well, but the plant is plenty capable mm-hmm. of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't grow it that way. Well, and that is part of the reason that the tissue culture labs use it originally, because in that cell tray, there is no individual pot. So they're using that membrane as a pseudo pot so that when that plant develops its first tiny bit of roots, it can circle and develop in that one central peat ball instead of coming out the bottom or, you know, not having a place to stay contained so that like you mentioned, when you take it out of that tray to then put it in a larger pot, it is all contained together. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it's definitely, a, it's definitely. I, I can understand why they get there, yeah. but hopefully that's a little bit helpful to you if you've been worrying about... Um, death plug. The death plug. That's a funny <laughs> name. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that until you mentioned that. So. All right, so you heard it here first, everyone, uh, that uh, Shane, Brett have uh, busted the myth of death plugs. Yeah, unless, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say unless it ha- is is several weeks old and hasn't produced any roots because of it for some reason, mm-hmm. but, but if I it's mean, already in a pot, mm-hmm. there's no harm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we'll wrap this up and we'll move on to questions soon. I think we've said everything we can, but also you have to realize that let's say of the tissue culture that we produce here in house, let's say eighty percent of them have this mesh membrane on them we would have mass dieouts of plants mm-hmm. if this was really an issue but we don't have any issues in regards to plant death because of this so i mean i would say the proof it, the proof is in the pudding oh yeah <laughs> and we've even we've even had a uh, previous it has i don't think it's happened this year at least not that i've observed but there have been years previous where from the same vendor or from two different vendors mm-hmm. same species uh you know ficus yellow gem or something from two different people trying to mm-hmm. grow it from tissue culture one has it one without it and like you're saying you can plant it and there's no there's no difference. there's no difference to us so that's our perspective at least as commercial yeah, growers. It, like zach said if you were listening to this and you were just <laughs> enraged and you have to let us know how personally you feel about oh, they're plugs, writing that let, email it, it, right already now, yeah let us know Brett Please, at gabrielaplants.com <laughs> <laughs> his cell phone number is <laughs> Awesome. Uh, you can hit him up on Instagram <laughs> at Brett with plants. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you made the mistake calling for those. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, all right, Zach, do we want to go for some of these questions before we get out of here today? Yeah. So we've got a few questions for the two of you. Uh, let's start over on Facebook. Uh, Shane asked earlier on the behind the scenes group. Um, Nicole asks, what's your favorite propagation method for philodendrons? such as a Gabby. Go ahead, Shane. I'm assuming they're saying like soil or water or whatever mm-hmm. else. I mean, everything we do is in um, soil. We don't water propagate mm-hmm. here. So as far as that method, 
Um, for Gabby, it's just cutting, uh, taking the cuttings and planting them into um, partly moist soil and keeping them that way. And you you grow everything at Brooks basically in 50-50 mix, right? Yeah. So but, it's so, so it's soil propagation, but it's 50% BM6, which is our usual potting, you know, soilless potting media, and then 50% perlite. Yeah. So it has a lot more drainage and, and not that it works like Leka in that configuration, mm-hmm. but you're getting closer to the drainage mm-hmm. of something like that than you are to it being a thick, thick amount of peat, yeah. um, which makes it a little bit easier to regulate the you know, the moisture levels and things like that on it. Um, the other thing I've noticed about Gabby specifically, though, and I shared this with um, mm. Brett, who was recently uh, propagating some too, depending on the stem width, um, I sometimes will plant two nodes together into one. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of has a downside effect and an upside effect. Upside, obviously, there's a reason I'm doing it. It's a higher success rate of the cuttings that survive. Downside, though, most all the time, that bottom leaf on the if there were two nodes planted into the soil together the one that would be furthest towards the bottom of the pot is just going to get slightly suffocated in the way that the leaf connects to the the stem mm-hmm. over time so you eventually do lose one of those two leaf but i've noticed a less likelihood of failure mm-hmm. of the propagation by planting two at a time again just depending on the kind of size of the stem and the the exact cutting you're playing with that's part of the thing that makes propagating cutting so difficult though mm-hmm. is it's can be wildly different from pot to pot, from mother plant to mother plant, whether you're planting something a little bit thicker, mm-hmm. something a little bit larger, whether the leaves that you're of the cuttings you're planting are bigger or smaller. So there's a lot of variations to it. Yeah, and I will say uh, rooting something in sphagnum moss or just straight perlite or, or a mix of the two uh, has its purpose and its time and place. You know, if there's one plant that you have that you really, really are worried about, whether it's going to root or it's going to rot, Maybe it is better to do it in sphagnum. I mean, I do have a select few things that I will root that way, but especially on a production standpoint, soil is the way to go. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we are lucky to be, like you're saying, we are lucky to be able to live with the fact that Mm -hmm. if 5% of a crop don't survive long term, that's okay because we're planting a crop big enough. If you have just the one specimen you're really all invested Mm -hmm. into, it can be a bit different. But yeah, hopefully that's a little bit helpful on the propagation techniques for Gabby specifically. Good question. Yeah, that was a great question. Um, okay, up next, we have a question from Annie West. Uh, she says, I always have a million questions. I was <laughs> that kid in school. Um, I feel like Brett was that kid as well. I was just so about to perfect. say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so her first question is, you mentioned in a previous podcast that we need more growers, especially in places like Ohio. What is your advice for those of us in these states who want to grow their own business but live in extreme poverty and or have disabilities? Um, many of us have the heart and drive, but majorly lack resources. Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. Um, and and I think I was able to message with this particular person and, and offer some kind of pointed advice too. But I've honestly kind of a little bit of a sidetrack from part of the question, but on point to the other part was I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people I'm seeing in cold environments Mm -hmm. growing indoors. We were up with Ill Exotics, and by no means are they growing at mass scale. They're Mm -hmm. not doing what we do in the greenhouse. But yes, they're they're actively growing plants that they plan to sell under grow lights in a basement Mm -hmm. or in a room that is in a traditional... garage. Yeah, Yeah. the traditional home. So... Um, your typical things and how to grow a plant apply. You need to have the right light. You need to have the right water. 
Um, there are some limitations to some of those things. If you have a fairly large basement and you were going to fill it with all plants <laughs> at your home, you may still have to pay the water bill mm-hmm. if you live in a city where that water comes from there or may have to set up some form of rainwater collection if the city water is not um, as clean as you would want to be able to use on particular more sensitive plants. Um, there, But I'm always encouraged by how many people are seeming to make it work, especially at mm-hmm. the scale that they want to grow at regardless of their location, because we now live in a world where you can get an LED grow light on Amazon, you can get, mm. you know, the 24 hour timers and wire shelvings and be able to fit a lot without a greenhouse. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was going to say is that luckily in 2022, the resources are out there. Um, so really, if it is something you want to do, you just got to put in the time and, and do the research and do the due diligence. And it, it's definitely, it's feasible. Yeah. And, and if you're looking for a place to get started, I know I've mentioned this a couple different times, but look contacting other growers in your area, if you don't mm-hmm. know who that is, your local state department of agriculture would be the one licensing growers around you. So they would probably have a list of licensed growers that you may be able to go speak to to find some of the solutions that work. Mm -hmm. Speaking of regional solutions, I was kind of mind blown by one of your friends explaining that their only source of heat in the greenhouse was essentially steam, Mm -hmm. that they weren't using open flame anything. Yep. Um, You said steam? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Because they're in New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're connected to the steam pipes. Oh. So that's like, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. yo, that is a pro move because that's (laughs) humidity and heat at the same time, which is like a double Mm -hmm. whammy of good. Um, yeah, write so that down, double to, whammy. <laughs> <laughs> to, to add on to that, not only your state agricultural um, department, but every state should have some sort of landscape or nursery association, even mm-hmm. if you live in a cold area. So definitely reach out to them and they will have ample resources for you. And a lot of what the foliage industry is, uh, there was a new uh, statistic released by uh, FNGLA, which is mm-hmm. our association of growers in uh, the state of Florida, that 69% of foliage plants in the United States were grown from Florida. So the reality is, which is a pretty insane fact, Mm -hmm. it was not that high a couple of years ago, (laughs) but um, the reality is you may have to come down. Some supplies may be legitimately cheaper to get here. Mm -hmm. Your same friend will come down here to get baby plants to grow up and grow out um, up where they, they grow up there. So um, don't be, you may have to do a little bit of traveling, um, and certainly if there's anything we can ever do to help, you're welcome to shoot us an email and we can always try to get back to you when we can, but definitely depending on your scale, being able to buy in bulk is the next like step. Yep. So, um, soil is pretty expensive. If you're buying it on Amazon, if you have a trailer or even just a, a you know minivan and can get some bulk bags from a, a regional grower near you or a garden center, you know, those are kind of the first steps to starting to make it a little bit more economical than buying everything online and paying shipping fees for everything. Yeah, so. I think final part to this question would be like Shane, you know, kind of covered is that we are lucky that in our industry we're all about networking. Like growers love to share their information. Growers, you know, growers aren't going to hoard that and be like, I'm not going to tell you where I got this or how I do this. Like we we all as growers want to share and we all want to, you know, further the practice. So mm-hmm. we need we need more of us and we yep. need more people. More people need more plants. Great so, question. Yeah. Good question. Okay, so we're going to switch over to uh, internal question. This one actually comes from Miriam. Mm. Um, she asks, if you could magically have a bench full of new SKUs to sell and share, what would you want? 
Okay, so this question, this is like if I could have any plant this, that I could just this is, mass this produce. This is going to be... And just uh, full bench. Keep it uh, 30 seconds or less. Hope you guys are ready for the next go. 45 <laughs> minutes of Brett's answer. <laughs> um, if this really is a hypothetical, the thing, the plant that I would think of would be, well, Witsia mirabilis. So it's this plant that I've killed three of them already it, previously they were lear- it was a learning experience i have one now that is doing great it, it's doing great but it's this plant that is native to the deserts of namibia and it only ever grows two leaves its entire life it only has two leaves and it will just over time those two leaves will get longer and wider with age so they are- don't even produce a replacement leaf no 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 the, it's two leaves. It, it's two leaves their entire life. And those two leaves just continue from the one central growth point, push out and get longer and wider. And so there are specimens in the desert of Namibia that are estimated to be over a thousand years old. And Holy it's literally cow. just a pile of just these two leaves that have just circled up on each other. And so as well, these plants are... Uh, are dioecious, meaning there are male and female ones. So because there's only ever two leaves, you can't really propagate it from cutting. <laughs> True. So the only True. way so the yeah. only way to grow them is from seed. And in order to grow them from seed, you need to have both a male plant and a female plant that are able to be pollinated at the same time to then set seed. And then once you get the seeds, there is actually a fungus in the wild that will inoculate and kill i believe the percentage is like 98 percent of all seeds that are formed Hmm. so this plant is one crazy in how it grows two really really hard to grow and then three basically has no help from mother nature i was gonna say how is this thing still around it's how how do you survive evolution when like yeah when they say survival of the fittest i'm sorry that (laughs) plant does not sound like the fittest (laughs) right no it doesn't sound like no like uh, it's sorry two leaves i'm done like (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's a gymnosperm so uh, usually if i say gymnosperms gymnosperm is cone bearing so People typically think of like pine trees when you say gymnosperms, but gymnosperms evolved before angiosperms, which were flowering plants. So it's an old plant. It isn't the most evolved plant. It is definitely not the fittest. So there are not a lot of them, and the ones that are left are either super, super old or few and far between. Um, and unfortunately, there's also poaching going on in those areas mm-hmm. because they are so you know hard to to grow. So I think one for conservation regions, and two because it is the coolest plant. Um, I would have a whole bench of Wawitzium rabilis. Oof! Uh, I I love Brett's answer because he started <laughs> the whole thing by saying I've killed a lot of them, yeah. <laughs> but I want an entire <laughs> bench of them. Yeah, like you have some confidence there, yeah. man. I would not be <laughs> doubling that's just, down. Yeah, that's just proof that you know that's normal. You yeah, know? again, like, yeah, you're killing plants. All part yeah, of it. just keep. Well, and I mean, also let that show of what an advanced type of plant and not a real fit plant that it is. Is I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a pretty advanced grower and I killed three of them. So. Right, right. <laughs> uh, word, word of uh, caution there. I would say my tip is if you are really interested in this plant and you do manage to find one and grow it, even though they are native to the deserts of Namibia and grow literally in sand in this desert don't treat it like a cactus or a succulent you need to keep it watered like a regular tropical house plant and so that's what happened with the first couple i had is that i was i was drying it out yeah interesting 
That's wild. Again, I don't know how that's still there. <laughs> as far as what I would take a whole bench of, um, probably honestly, I don't know. I've been I've been digging back into the Hoya mm. thing. Oh, Hoya. They're they're simultaneously extraordinarily pleasing to propagate and the process of being able to chop and multiply and do the production ramp on them is just a fun process. They also, I feel like are such a chore when you can't get to trimming them soon enough. And now you're trying to like detangle an entire bench that has just created one. You could walk on it mesh. Yep. Um, But yeah, probably Hoyas. Um, I don't have specific ones in mind, but I'd take a whole bench of Hoyas if I could, just if I could get a match. whole, yeah, just I a like bunch it. of just a bunch of new ones to to start chopping, that'd be my wish. I love it. All right, this one's uh, from Instagram. Um, Britt asks, "How do you drop variegation in a monstera albo when it gets too white and still have growth?" All right, so you're basically worried that your variegated monstera albo is too variegated, and, and it will begin it, to decline because of the lack of chlorophyll right. in the leaf. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that it can happen mm-hmm. but for the most part correct me if i'm wrong brett no, i'll ahead. step out first uh <laughs> most variegation is is fueled by light and nutrients mm-hmm. so normally changing one or both of those things mm-hmm. not by removing it from light not by going 100 <laughs> percent in the opposite direction but by taking that 25 percent mm-hmm. less of one of those two things that would be my or, tip yeah or the reverse or if it's if it's in really really or if it's in lower light and it's highly variegated try giving it more light like it may not always be less it may be mm-hmm. either or i would say change up the situation change up the growing conditions um basically you want to you need to confuse the plant mm-hmm. uh the other make thing, it a little bit unsure yeah exactly the other thing would be though it may be hard to do if there are three or four nodes back, a, a greener leaf, you could cut it back down to that node. And then the idea is when it pushes out of that node that had the greener leaf, that growth, therefore, should be greener. Yeah, you'll get closer to what that was. But mm-hmm. again, if you're way over the nutrients right. that you should be using, you can still chop back and get the same mm-hmm. all white reaction. So again, need to be mindful of probably changing something up. But I also want to take this opportunity to say, just like Pink Princess, all pink leaves, mm-hmm. if that leaf is that way because it's formed that way in your environment, most likely, short of the volcano going off and the cloud, <laughs> you know, the sky mm-hmm. turning to volcanic ash, it's going, it's it's able to produce that and it is feeling comfortable enough to produce it. Mm-hmm. So it will most likely be able to maintain the right. leaves that it does produce if those more variegated than what makes you comfortable leaves occurred in your growing environment. If you get an all white monstera it in the transition, not only of into your growing environment, but the dark box in the mail and mm-hmm. everything. Yes, it's going to decline and decline very quickly. Mm-hmm. However, if those leaves did emerge naturally, right, they may be very well sustainable for the little bit of time. So if you don't necessarily want it to go taller, and you're okay with it, it'll also slow down mm-hmm. when they go to that much white. It's also not necessarily a problem to leave it. It's right. up to you. Yeah. We answered the question if you right. want to change it, but also if it's able to sustain it right now, the plant's clearly feeling comfortable with it for one reason or another. So sometimes you don't have to fix what's not broken just because somebody got an all variegated leaf of something. It was shipped through the mail and thus it declined. Doesn't mean that when it forms in your area, that it will decline as quickly. Because in my experience, they t- they typically can sustain them. Mm-hmm. 
most of it, the time. I agree. Mm. Yeah, that was a really good question. Um, so Christina over in the Facebook behind the scenes group asks, what do you do when you have no options for humidity inside a house that is south, southeast light and gets extremely dry? Uh, well, I have a couple things. I mean, I definitely recommend just as a normal household thing, getting a humidifier. You're not looking for a heat or a cooling one. I would aim for like an ultrasonic humidifier. Mm -hmm. Um, you can get ones that are really cheap. You can get more expensive ones, uh, but that is something that it won't affect your day-to-day, and it's not like your apartment or home will become a cloud forest and you open the door and it's like 100% humidity. <laughs> you can use a humidifier and still maintain it in that way that will give your plants a little bit of boost, um, and you can also keep it by your plants or or facing or you know blowing onto your plants, so then it basically creates a microclimate in that specific area that you have the plants. Um, as well, though it may not be as aesthetically pleasing, if you are worried about maintaining humidity higher on a specific plant, I'm all for tenting or like doming a plant. So using like a plastic humidity dome over it, or even as simple as a Ziploc bag, get a, get a gallon Ziploc bag, put a stick in the pot to keep it up from touching against the leaves and then, you know, tape it around the bottom or zip it closed around the bottom. Or of the I've pot. seen people use the the clear Rubbermaid bins mm-hmm. so that they're, you know, it has a deeper depth. Um, any of that. Yeah. If, if the room you're speaking of humidifier or not, just because of mm-hmm. the sun, because of everything else is going to struggle to have the humidity you want. The next best thing you can do is put it in some mm-hmm. form of enclosure. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's, It may be difficult to realize, but if there are some plants out there that are just advanced level that require those specific growing conditions that if you're not able to provide those specific growing conditions, maybe it just isn't meant for your environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you got to either adapt and give it what it wants or the plant's never going to be super happy, but... Yeah, I also am a huge fan of like terrariums, vivariums, and I mean, those are way more aesthetically appealing than you know rubbermaid tote or ziploc bag that invest in a nice glass terrarium and keep it in there get your lights up oh yeah it'll look, yeah especially it'll look when not all plants, plants love it like you were saying not all plants are going to need that mm-hmm. so you can just mm-hmm. as easily have a, a relatively you may even be able to get away even if you want to do the rubber bit rubber made bin concept mm-hmm. you could you probably don't need to get your entire collection into rubber made right right you probably just need to get the ones <laughs> yeah. that you're trying to hang on to but of course that's tricky when you want to to see them in your collection right. so yeah the the ikea greenhouses as mm. we've talked about before or any of those other ways to enclose something definitely a definitely mm. the next best thing you can go to and to tag on to that um she also asked which is actually good uh, timing because you guys have been experimenting with them in the greenhouse um but she asked what types of bugs can be, re- be released in said dirt that helps with spider mites because of the dry area and everything. Okay, so there there are beneficial insects out there or beneficial pests out there um, that do target spider mites. So there are predatory mites that we've used previously. Um, all of these uh, predatory things can be purchased as a home consumer. You just got to Google, you know, beneficial, beneficial mites, mites, beneficial yeah. pests, um, and find the resource that fits your budget is is local to you um but i would say the best one out the best ones out there for spider mites specifically are going to be predatory mites there aren't really other insects other than praying mantids that will eat mites right yeah mites are kind of in their own Mm -hmm. uh, own realm which is why the predatory mites thing was such a big 
leap, mm-hmm. kind of like um, they did with mosquitoes, the same type of thing where like we can't really get rid of them, but what we can do is help, you know, bioengineer that and, you know, be yep. involved in that way. So sometimes you have to use within the species in order to get the outcome you want. So the whole predatory <laughs> mite thing being a mite that like just so fits cool. the exact, yeah. yeah, it's it's nature in its own way. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so for f- the final question, okay. Alec, who uh, is one of our greenhouse team members, mm-hmm. he actually had a handful of really good questions. So I'm going to let sh- Brett pick which one he wants to answer because honestly, they're all really, really good. And- <laughs> all right. Yeah, no, Alec is uh, one of our greenhouse team members. He's uh, been awesome uh, over there at the greenhouses and he's always got he's always got good questions in person, too. He's always really on top of it with questions. All right, so I'm going to choose, Alec asks, how is it possible that in some cases you can hybridize between different genera, but usually can't? Mm-hmm. So these uh, these hybrids are known as intergeneric hybrids. Um, and really, to take a step back on that, to give some preface to the question, hybridization is possible because the plants are closely related enough that when it comes to fertilization the 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 gametes accept each other as familiar as opposed to being not familiar and basically being enemies if you tried to hybridize two completely different things allocation and philodendron there we go allocation and philodendron even though they are both in the family araceae they are not closely related enough genetically that those gametes would be able to fuse and form a new plant. Yeah, it's it's not it, when it's trying to do its sexual production. It's not compatible with right. with it. Right. Um, this is a ho- crazy reference. I don't know why this just came to mind, but there's a Hillary Duff song where she says, "Trying to trying to fit a square into a circle is my life." A 2009 callback. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but so it's like, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. If it yeah, doesn't work, yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't work. work. So in those chances that you are able to produce an intergeneric hybrid, it is because either in that specific instance, it was a fluke and those specific gametes were like, hey, I'm down to clown. Like, mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let it happen this time. Um, mm. And then sometimes it, you could make that same exact cross again and it won't work. Um, but really, it comes down to just being more closely related. So I know there have been hybrids done between colocasia and caladium mm-hmm, um, because mm-hmm. even though they are different genera, they are more closely related than an allocation of philodendron are that they let it slip and it ends up happening. Right. Because those those other uh, receptors, mm-hmm. um, are they have their own programming to know no, thank you. That's not for me. <laughs> right. If that, just like a, a mutation happens in a in a foliage part of a leaf, if that instructions of what I'm supposed to play with right. is wrong or missing, mm-hmm. it can allow those. So in its own way, it's probably somewhat of a genetic mutation mm-hmm. happening, a, a problem happening to the plant that the plant therefore doesn't know how to prevent it. Well, and happening. then as well, there are also like evolutionary... Um, fail-safes that are in place that even if that intergeneric hybrid is able to be created and a berry forms with seeds inside, sometimes those seeds won't be viable. And so if you try to germinate them, they won't grow. Or if again, you get past that fail-safe and you are able to germinate and grow it, 
most times that plant will be sterile and won't produce any viable pollen to then be able to yeah make more offspring if you think of a mule which is a basically intergeneric cross of a of a donkey and a horse mules are sterile so you can't breed a mule and get more mules Mm -hmm. that's interesting Hmm. that's wild that was a really good question yeah and also does that is that probably the ones that happen in nature for it obviously Mm -hmm. he's talking about breeding in a kind of like Mm -hmm. intentional way but is that maybe some of going back to the top of the podcast why we have some of these reclassifications because somewhere along the line 5,000 years ago, these two maybe weren't supposed to link up, mm-hmm. but somewhere along the line, something got, you know, messed up. And mm-hmm. now we have this kind of more complex thing that's harder without a DNA analysis. To know that they ever were compatible. Yeah, or that uh, they were cousins a, at one point. That's a, uh, I was going to use this as an example, and this feeds perfectly into that, that there's a, a nursery here in Florida that um, cross-pollinated uh, a uh, Dracaena fragrance and a Sansevieria zelonica. And so the plant is really weird looking. It's, it's like a super floppy leafy Sansevieria and it's, it's weird. It's definitely weird, but now knowing that Sansevieria were reclassified and are actually Dracaena, even though they're from different parts of the world, it kind of gives us a view into the genetics and like, hey, you guys aren't that different because mm-hmm. you're able to breed. Yeah, and at some point, mm-hmm. yeah, you're probably in a rainforest not too far away from one another, right. and yeah, got bored. Yeah, yep. <laughs> attend the same social mixer. Yeah, uh, yep. Another. <laughs> a little Netflix. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and there we go. Uh, and well, on that note. Yeah, <laughs> this has been an amazing podcast, uh, guys. It's always fun to get to do this with you. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, you can learn more about us at Gabriella Plants on our website at GabriellaPlants.com or follow us on Instagram at GabriellaPlantsOnline. And you can also follow more updates on the podcast on Instagram at EveryPlantStory. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Bye, guys. See ya. Shane wanted me to make sure that I answered this question, and I really do appreciate that you guys uh, look and check out my nails. But so Jonathan asked on the behind the scenes group, Brett, how do you keep your nails so immaculate with all the plant work you do? I can't keep mine for more than like two days. So my secret is it is called powder dip. So basically what they do is they put on my nails this powder and then put on a layer of gel and then powder and then gel and then powder and gel. And then I do an extra top coat layer to keep them extra shiny and nice. And I've been in this greenhouse and getting my nails done since December 2020, and I've never, knock on wood, had a chip on my nail because this powder dip is amazing. So there you go. That's your answer. Thanks, guys.